The Bible shows time and again that unity has to be fought for. Unity is not something that just happens by accident. Sinners do not walk in a singleness and a fellowship and a unity of purpose and mind by default. Warfare is the default. Strife is the default. Hatred, discord, broken relationships, divorce, fallings out. That, that is what usually defines and what comes into our relationships and our organizations. Anything that men build together, inevitably it falls apart. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We would all rather be peacekeepers. Because peacekeepers' job is just to maintain the status quo. That's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. The truth is, unity, reconciliation, peace in our relationships between warring parties requires peacemaking. It requires a proactivity, not passivity. It seems counterintuitive to talk about fighting for peace. Right? Warring for unity. However, the, the Apostle Paul this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is going to begin to unfold for us what great lengths he is willing to go in order to make peace. What kind of war is he willing to wage in order to bring about unity in the body of Christ? How does a church fight for unity as a body? If you have your Bibles this morning, which I hope you do, if not, grab a blue one from the view in front of you. Let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're in your blue pew Bible... You can turn to page 1231. 1231, and uh, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible, the Big Ten is the beginning of a new chapter, and that's where we're going to begin to re uh, read God's Word together. So let's stand together in honor of God's Word as we receive it with unity and singleness of mind. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, 
and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You may be seated. Paul writes in chapter 6 of this letter, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your affections. In return, widen your hearts also. If you've been with us over the past three months, and we've been working our way through this letter, we've come to see that whatever rift there is in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, it is not Paul's fault. He says, our heart, we're swinging the doors as wide open as we can to receive you. Why are you closing your hearts toward us, Corinthians? Won't you open your hearts wide to us as well? And yet, it's not Paul's fault. And yet, we begin this chapter, chapter 10. Paul is pleading, begging, entreating the Corinthians. I, Paul, he says, myself entreat you. Paul says, it's not my fault. This rift, this disunity, but do you know what? I am willing to step into the battlefield. Waging war, not to kill and destroy the Corinthians, but Paul is stepping in. He says, I'm going to make peace in whatever way I can. And if Paul, who we have seen time and again, has done everything right in this relationship, if he feels a burden and a responsibility to step into this relationship in order to fight for unity, certainly for each of us in our relationships, we have a responsibility as every believer to fight for unity, which is what we're going to talk about this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. How do we fight for unity in our relationships? Unity in our churches? Unity in our marriages? Unity in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities? Paul sets an example for us this morning in three steps that we have to take if we're going to fight for unity. Number one, Demonstrate the humility of Christ. We have to demonstrate the humility of Christ. As Paul begins this next section, we have to realize he's being sarcastic in the second half of verse 1. Okay, Look down at verse 10. We didn't read it this morning, but we will next week. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They say, have you seen Paul? The guy's like this tall. He's all hunched over. He doesn't have a good speaking voice. He's so humble. He's weak. He's nothing to look at. And Paul's response in verse 1 is so classic. He basically says, so what what I'm hearing is that you're accusing me of being Christ-like. Is that what I'm hearing from you? (laughs) You're, You're saying I'm meek. I'm gentle. 
I don't have anything in my appearance to draw you to myself or to impress you with my speech. Rather than being insulted, Paul leans into the humility of Christ. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Paul's entreaty here is meant to remind us of Matthew chapter 11. Do you remember the invitation of Jesus? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly at heart. Those are the words Paul uses here. Meek, gentle, humble, and you will find rest for your souls. If we're going to be able to fight for unity in our relationships, we have to first demonstrate the humility of Jesus Christ. But what does the meekness and gentleness of Christ look like? You know, if we look through the Gospels, there's example after example on every page. Even at the start of his life, we all know where Jesus was laid when he was born in a manger. It was demonstrating that from start to finish, it was a life of humility. But I think the three greatest acts of humility that we see in the life of Jesus actually happened in the last 24 hours before he died. The first one happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. John tells us that Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Just think for a moment. These are the hands that multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. These are the hands that touched the eyes of the blind and made them to see. These are the hands that motioned to the wind and the waves and said, Peace be still, and they listened. These are the hands that when they touch lepers who are unclean, Jesus doesn't become unclean, but the lepers go away cleansed. These, brothers and sisters, are the hands that fashioned the heavens and the earth. And these are the hands that are now washing the feet of His disciples. Do you want a demonstration of the humility of Christ? See it in how He served. Serve. Jesus looked up into our faces and as His warm hands are drying our feet with a towel, this is what He says, If then... I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Serve, Jesus says. You want to demonstrate a humility like me? Serve. Serve your wife. Serve your husband. Serve your brothers, your housemates, your roommate. Serve your children. Serve your co-workers. And for Christ's sake, serve your brothers and sisters in the church, just like he did. Look for opportunities where you get to stoop down and care for the needs of others. Look for those menial tasks that you think are beneath you, that someone else ought to do. Those are the things Jesus says, I stooped to do. Will you not also? 
And think about this. Jesus even washed the feet of his greatest enemy, Judas Iscariot himself. Is there anyone then that we are excused from serving in our lives? This whole letter, 2 Corinthians, is the Apostle Paul stooping to people he shouldn't have to serve. He's already written once to straighten things out in Corinth. He spent a year and a half serving them faithfully. He has the authority as an apostle to come to them and say, I command you by the authority invested in me as an apostle, you obey. And what do we find him doing? Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I beg you, I entreat you, I plead with you, please. He gets down on the floor with his towel and his basin and he serves his brothers and sisters. Do you want to demonstrate the humility of Christ? Here's a practical way to do it. Look for ways that you can serve. The second most humble moment in the life of Jesus came only a few hours later. You go into the Garden of Gethsemane. You probably remember the scene. Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, knowing He's going to be arrested, He's going to be falsely condemned, He's going to be beaten, He's going to be whipped, then He's going to be pierced through, mocked, humiliated, until He suffocates to death on a wooden cross. He knows all of this is coming. And so, Jesus, understandably, kneels down and says, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. I would argue that there has not been a humbler word in the history of the world uttered than that one word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. The Son of God is pleading, begging with the Father to remove the cup of His wrath that is about to be poured out on Him, and yet His prayer hinges on that humble word, nevertheless. Not my will but yours be done. Do you want to grow in demonstrating the humility of Christ? Jesus' own example shows us what we need to do. Pray. I've heard it said the greatest act of pride is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Humble people pray. Jesus, the Son of God, who existed in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, for some reason decided and and thought it was essential for His life that He prayed. The Gospels tell us Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying before He began His ministry. We often see Jesus absconding to some mountain just so He can carve out a whole night to spend praying. And what was he praying? Well, I think we get a glimpse into it. The prayer that he prays here on this mountain. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed this prayer knowing full well what was written in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. How on earth can you say nevertheless when you know that's what's about to happen? Do you have the humility to pray, nevertheless, not my will, God, but yours be done, even though you know it's the will of God to take up your cross 
and follow Jesus. In a world that tells you life is a race to the top, Christians who pray are in a race to the bottom. A race that Jesus has already won. You're not going to outrun him to the bottom, by the way. We're asking God, we're saying, God, please, will you flatten my mountain a little bit more so that your mountain will seem even taller to the rest of the world? Can you lower me a little bit more so that you can be more glorified in my life? Nevertheless, God, your will be done, not mine. If we want to see a demonstration of the humility of Christ in our lives, we have to pray. The Apostle Paul certainly did. At the end of chapter 9, just a few verses before this morning's reading in verse 14, he says that in Macedonia, they're spending Sunday after Sunday praying together for the Corinthians. Paul and the church there in Macedonia are late to the buffet every Sunday because they're spending so much time not even praying for themselves, but praying for the Corinthians that he's writing to. So that's the second instance, but I really think the greatest instance of the humility of Christ comes the next day. The place where we see the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus on full display is on Good Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's done the walk of shame through the streets of Jerusalem. He's been kicked out of the city. They've pierced Him. They've hung Him up there. They've mocked Him. And as they are crying out against him in the middle of his own execution with one of his last dying breaths, here's what he manages to wheeze out. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friend, if those are not the sweetest words that you have ever heard in your life, let me tell you something. God The very God, the Son of God, was sent from heaven to come and become a man and to live for 33 years so that at the end of those 33 years, even though he had never sinned and been perfectly obedient to the law of God, so that he could be falsely condemned, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, hung on a tree, so that in his last dying breath, he could say, Father, forgive you. He did all of that so that he could hang on a cross and proclaim forgiveness for all those who would repent and believe in him. We see the greatest demonstration of Jesus' humility in his sacrifice. There is no greater sacrifice than the one that he offered up on the cross for the forgiveness of every terrible, wicked, disobedient unrepentant thing that we've done in our lives. Can you believe that the Son of God would offer Himself in our place? What kind of humility is that? You and I who mock Jesus in the pride of our heart, who willfully disobey God even now sometimes, day after day. Can you believe that even while you were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for you. What is it to us to simply humble ourselves at the feet of the cross and beg and plead, may it be for me, Jesus. 
I want those words for me. I want your forgiveness for me. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to seek to demonstrate the humility of Christ, we, we have a picture of it in the Gospels. Three practical ways. We serve. We pray. And we sacrifice. Paul tells the Corinthians, lowly, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, uh, whipped, kicked out of town, persecuted, chased across the four corners of the earth, Paul tells the Corinthians, do you know what? I'll take one more hit for you. I'm willing to step into the battlefield again for you. That's what verse 2 is all about. Paul's saying, if you're not willing to step into the battlefield for unity, do you know what? I will. I'm willing to make the sacrifice. Number one, if we're going to fight for unity, we have to demonstrate the humility of Christ. Secondly, Paul shows us that we have to destroy the strongholds. Destroy the strongholds. In verse 3, Paul begins to use uh, military metaphors to describe his ministry. All of his verbs have to do with warfare. He's talking about waging war and he says our weapons and tearing down strongholds. He even talks about taking every thought as a POW, as a captive. The second step on the pathway to to unity in any of our relationships is to tear down, to destroy the strongholds. Look at verse 3 with me. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What Paul is talking about here is his own ministry. And he says the ministry of the gospel is warfare. When Paul and other ministers of the good news of Jesus are engaging in preaching the good news, they're not simply just getting up behind a wooden lectern and telling some cute stories that get people warm warm fuzzies. It's not about putting together a well-edited homily that gets everyone out right at noon. Paul says, when I get up to preach the gospel, I am waging war. It's not about pandering for power among the culture or politicians or cultural elites. He says, preaching is an act of war. That's what's taking place even now as we listen to the word of God. In order for us to destroy the strongholds in our lives, the ministers of the gospel have a responsibility, and we as all believers have a responsibility. If we're going to tear down and destroy the strongholds, the ministers of the gospel must preach. What weapon do you think Paul is referring to when he says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. There's only one weapon that I know of that has God-given power to tear down every stronghold, to tear down every enemy of God, and it's this, the Word of God. This is the sword of the Spirit, the weapon not according to human flesh, but according to divine power to destroy every stronghold. Every minister of the Gospel has the responsibility to wield this in the warfare against our enemy. 
and tearing down every stronghold. We cannot destroy strongholds with money. We cannot tear down strongholds with a large membership. We can't destroy strongholds with big buildings or nice fancy programs or a huge children's wing. There is only one weapon that will fell every enemy of the darkness one day. There is only one weapon that destroys every stronghold and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed from the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And it may seem counterintuitive. We're thinking about, well, we're trying to bring unity. Why on earth would you bring weapons into a meeting where you're trying to promote unity? Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? It's a pretty mighty stronghold, wasn't it? The people were even unified there. They were working hard, all of mankind gathering together, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Lofty words. The people united, building a stronghold, and building a stronghold against God Himself. And so God comes down and He confuses their language and mixes up their words Paul says in verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. Destroying strongholds means tearing down every tower of Babel that has been built upon the words of man. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has said to his people, The only stronghold that will stand in the last day is the one that is built upon the rock. Upon the words of Christ. Every stronghold built on any other foundation is raised, Paul says, against the knowledge of God. It's the minister of the gospel's job to preach. And as he does, this word tears down every tower of Babel in whatever stage of development it may be among the people of God. Prejudice Pride, lofty opinions, racism, classism, whatever strongholds men may have, none of them can stand before the Word of God. So that's the preacher's responsibility. The ministers of the gospel have to preach if we're going to destroy the strongholds. But every believer also has a responsibility in this too if we're going to tear them down. All believers must examine. I think often we think of, you know, going marching out and tearing down strongholds as some kind of culture war. You know, we go out the back door and for six days we're out there tearing down the strongholds of culture. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about marching into the church to tear down strongholds. We have to examine our own hearts. You'd be surprised how many strongholds are hiding in the corners of our own hearts. The towers of Babel that get built a little bit over here and a little bit over there. The strongholds that we begin to trust and run to instead of Christ. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
Examine your own heart, Paul says. What are the arguments that are bubbling up and being raised in your own heart against the Word of God? Because that's how it starts. We make little arguments, justifications. What justifications are you erecting in your heart that somehow excuse you from having to listen and experience conviction under the Word of God? Oh, that's not for me. It's for that guy. We erect little towers of logic and argumentation that somehow twist God's Word so that it applies to every other person except for me. Twisting it into mean things it never meant. What arguments are you running into even now in your own heart? You can feel them saying, this isn't for you, this passage isn't for you, don't feel bad, don't feel conviction. You have a responsibility to enter into your own heart and pray that the Spirit would begin to tear those strongholds down. Examine your hearts, friends. What lofty opinion have you built like a Tower of Babel standing tall in your own heart? I am something. I really am something. I can do a lot of this on my own. I don't really need God. Look at how strong I am. I don't need my brothers and sisters. I don't need to confess this sin. No one needs to know about this. I don't need to ask for forgiveness. In fact, you know what? They owe me. Lofty opinions, Paul says. They're strongholds. Pride is the sin of Adam and every human being who has walked this planet. A people united in their pride will be destroyed by the word. So let us get to work destroying every stronghold. Fighting for unity, it takes demonstrating the humility of Christ. It also takes destroying the strongholds. Finally, quite plainly, if we're going to fight together for unity, it takes, thirdly, we have to obey Christ. We have to obey Christ. Listen to verse 5 again. So I thought, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. There's no other way to put this, brothers and sisters. Here it is. Christians obey Christ and those who don't aren't Christians. Christians obey Christ and those who don't obey Christ are not Christians. Because by definition... That is what Christians do. We obey Christ. Paul says, I expect complete obedience among the true believers in the church of God. And everyone who chooses not to is showing himself to not be a part of the church of God. Two quick applications and then we'll be done. Obedience to Christ requires, number one, that we have to surrender our minds. Did you catch that? Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Obedience first starts with a surrendering of our mind. And the picture that Paul paints here is of us taking every single thought, tackling that thought, throwing handcuffs on that thought, and putting it in a chain gang, marching to the step of Jesus Christ. If Satan wants to destroy and divide the people of God... He's going to start in the mind. That's what he did in the garden. Did God really say? 
What's he doing there? He's planting one little seed. One little thought that unraveled the whole world. The war has to begin up here. We have to fight to surrender our minds to Jesus Christ and call our minds to obey Him with every thought. The temptation of pride starts up here when we start to think, I deserve better. I should be treated differently. I did X, Y, and Z for my boss. I did X, Y, and Z for my kids. I did X, Y, and Z for my wife. I should really be treated better. You all know those conversations we have with ourselves. We've got to take every thought captive. We have to surrender our mind every single thought. Lust and pride, they start with thoughts in our minds. Love and humility, guess where they start as well? Taking every thought captive. Making it obedient to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther echoed this verse in his famous stand before the Diet of Worms. He says, My conscience, my mind is captive to the Word of God. We want that to be true in each of our lives. We have to surrender our minds. And then lastly, obeying Christ also means we surrender our lives. I've had several conversations with different people over the course of this past week about what does it look like to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus? What does it mean to surrender your life? Inevitably, that conversation starts with this. You have to be baptized. The first step of obedience, the way that you demonstrate that you are surrendering your life to Jesus is through baptism. Jesus commands us to baptize as a church. He commands you to be baptized as a believer. If you're not willing to take that very simple, very plain first step of obedience, how on earth are you going to walk in a daily life where you're supposed to surrender to Jesus Christ if you're not even willing to take the first step? We have to go into the water and proclaim to God and the whole world it's no longer I but Christ who lives in me. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ and God. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord, if you are clinging to Him for forgiveness of sins, if you want to walk in newness of life, if you want to have the Spirit and begin to experience victory over those thoughts that plague your mind and begin to give your life over to Jesus Christ, it starts in those waters. You need to be baptized. Surrendering your life then means, secondly, joining a local church. I was talking to my friend Aunt Frederick, who pastors Midtown Fellowship in Two Notch down in Columbia. And we were talking about why is it that college students have, struggle so much with getting drunk and sleeping around? It just, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy, you know? Uh, the stereotypes. Why are they the stereotypes? And, I thought he had something really insightful to say. He said, it's basically impossible for a college student to walk in obedience, especially in those two areas, if they don't have a circle of friends around them who are committed to the exact same obedience. That's just the way it is. If you are not surrounded with people who have surrendered their life and are saying, we are going to obey Jesus together, you're never going to do it. You're never going to do it. And that's why it's so important as believers, not only that we 
take that first step of obeying Jesus in baptism, but then we need to get involved with a local church, join a group of people who are going to surround us and say, we will obey Christ together. Christian, if you are serious about obeying Christ, you're going to surrender your life to Jesus in the body of Christ. Other people who share your convictions, who are going to help you to obey, who are going to call you back when they see you walking away from Jesus or straying from the narrow way. Finally, surrendering your life simply means daily choosing to live as a captive of Jesus. He puts it perfectly. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Obedience is never merely hypothetical. If you obey Jesus in your mind, but not with your life, then you're not obeying Jesus. It's a daily choice. Every opportunity in your life is an opportunity to walk in obedience to Him. It controls your life. It's daily turning away from sin and turning to Jesus and His righteousness. This is our fight for unity. We've got to demonstrate the humility of Christ. We serve. We pray. We sacrifice. We've got to destroy the strongholds. This happens through the ministers of God preaching the word and the people of God examining their hearts. And then we've got to obey Jesus together. Surrender your mind. Surrender your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, give us the power to be able to do these things together. Help us to be strong and courageous in our fight for unity here. Because as the body of Christ is unified, we grow, we mature, and we bring glory to you. And there's nothing that the powers of darkness can do to stop us. We trust in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.